Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. How are you? I've just come upstairs. I'm sitting here in my uh, my office. I've just watched Arsenal versus Cologne. Cologne versus Arsenal, I should say, in the uh, in the Europa League. I'm sitting here now. I've got a glass of wine, and you know, usually when you play a European game, that. You know, it plays a big part in your podcast because, you know, the matches are what everything is about. That's why we're here. The football. We talk about it. We preview it. We we review it. We relive it. And I'm sitting here going, I don't want, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about that game. Not because I'm particularly annoyed or anything. It was just shite. It was bad. Bad, bad, bad. We played poorly. I mean, they're a terrible team. Let's be honest about it. Let's not beat around the bush here. Let's not say that, you know, we were beaten on the night by a better team who had some dynamic attacking players with lots of verve and spunk. But that's not the case. That's not what we did. We lost to a team who are who are terrible, who didn't play particularly well. I mean, this is their record from the start of the season, okay? They won their first game, then they lost, they lost, they lost, they lost, they lost, they lost again, then they drew a game, then they had four defeats in a row, they drew another game, then they won, hallelujah, they lost again, then they won. They beat Bate Borisel 5-2 in the Europa League a few weeks back, then they lost their next two games, and, you know, really they're rubbish. But we out-rubbished them on the night. It was not a good performance, not a good display. There were some, like, individuals who didn't do too badly. I mean, defensively, we didn't have an awful lot to do. I thought Mertesacker was quite good. Um, what else? Ainsley Maitland-Niles had some good moments down the left, but really, you know, needs to work on his his final ball. But that was kind of it, you know? Jack Wilshire, Olivier Giroud, Mohamed Elneny, Francis Coquelin. These guys who... As Arsene Wenger said before the game, are, are 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 determined to show what they're about, so they can force themselves into his thinking for the first team for the for the Premier League. None of them did that. None of them did that. None of them even came close to doing that. All the talk, for example, of Jack Wilshire being brought back into the team is like, oh, well, he hasn't really done anything to suggest that he would make things any better. And I get the counter-argument of that, which could be that if you put Jack in a team with better players around him, he might find it easier. But, you know, we're not playing particularly good teams here. Wilshire and Giroud, you know, these are experienced international players who 
who you would expect to maybe give a bit more and maybe produce a bit more to to make up for some of the slack. So, you know, it was really not a good not a good performance. But we'll have to talk a little bit about the game with uh, with someone who was there. Um, we might keep it fairly brief, though, because really nobody's got much time to, to relive that. A little bit later on, I will be chatting to Daniel Story from Football 365 about teacup stuff, uh, the media, the journalists, writers, reactions, fans, tribalism, the modern media landscape. It's an interesting chat, so we've got that to look forward to a bit later on. Uh, as well as that, I'll give you the winners of the Jens Lehmann competition. Last week, I gave you a chance to win one of five copies of Jens Lehmann's autobiography, The Madness is on the Pitch. There was no madness on the pitch tonight, I can tell you, apart from, no, there was no madness, no no madness whatsoever. Um, that would have been quite good if there'd been some madness. I mean, I did enjoy Francis Coquelin kicking the ball out uh, of play directly, just dribbling the ball out. That was that was good. I also enjoyed him nearly scoring. Wow, what was going on there? He had one shot which went just wide, and then he hit the post, and you're thinking, what the fuck is happening in the world? Are all the planets aligned? Is this the night that Francis Coquelin finally gets his first goal for Arsenal? No. No, it's not. It's not that night. We know it's not that night. But look, to talk a little bit more about the uh, the game, sorry, sorry, but this is why we're here. I'm joined from Cologne by a man who was there witnessing that incredible spectacle, Archie Rin Tut. Archie, has the uh, heartbeat settled down yet? <laughs> to be fair, the atmosphere at the end was was memorable. I wouldn't say that the game was, particularly in in any reach of it. I was looking around the press box and I just saw a lot of eyes rolling throughout the game because <laughs> I don't think they could believe quite how bad Cologne were. They'd seen that they were obviously uh, bottom of the Bundesliga, but I, I don't think that that's a game that will live long in the memory of uh, Cologne fans, to be honest, as, as a game, but I think the results certainly will. Yeah, I mean, it gives them a chance, doesn't it, in the final round uh, to... Uh, to qualify, um, the uh, the other game finished in a draw. So in all in all, a really good night for Cologne. Like you say, I don't think they're gonna they're gonna uh, relive that ninety minutes often, but certainly the result will be uh, a positive thing for them. I think they'll struggle to shift DVDs, but if they were maybe <laughs> to consolidate it down to the uh, ten seconds of the ball going in and the full time whistle, then, then they might shift a bit more. But no, I, look, if, if you're looking at things from a Cologne perspective, they they are so shot for confidence. I think any Arsenal fan would have recognised that tonight, given the performance they gave in the first half, and to be honest, the long periods of the second half as well. So they really needed that, especially because they got a big game in the Bundesliga. On Saturday, they've made on Sunday even they've they've made the worst start of any Bundesliga side to a season in 40 years. I would say that they very much looked like that tonight, just in terms of the lack of tempo and the hesitancy that is present in their game at present. Um, but and, and the coach Peter Sturger, he's under a lot of pressure. He was on the front page, or he's, he's been on the front page of the local tabloid Express pretty much every day this week. Um, and they, in fact, they put him next to Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor. Um, saying, can they do it uh, in, in, in reference to uh, whatever they can both turn around their current uh, beleaguered situations. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure who's got a better chance of doing that at present because uh, two points in 12 games is, is, is not a very good record indeed. No, well, you know, uh, if, if Angela Merkel needs a shot in the arm, she should arrange a fixture against Arsenal because we are absolute experts at, <laughs> <laughs> at providing teams with, with exactly that. I mean, the Arsenal performance, like you say, uh, Cologne are absolutely shot for confidence. They've only won three times all season. There was such a hesitancy about Arsenal, wasn't there, that they didn't really, 
they didn't really step out of, I, I hesitate to say second gear, because I don't think they really got out of first gear. They sort of sauntered through the game. There wasn't much dynamism in the way that they played. And certainly in the final third, there was no service uh, for Olivier Giroud, uh, who didn't look like he wanted to get on the end of anything anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought the home side's uh, lack of hesitancy almost overshadowed it because I thought Arsenal were the team who were looking far more likely to score, I would have say. If you played this game in eight out of ten circumstances, uh, you would probably get an away win. Mm. Um, and I think that actually in the first half, I thought I didn't think Arsenal looked necessarily good, but I, I would say decent enough and, and, and would have been good value to be ahead. Um, and I would say they were probably good enough value to win the game, such was the amount of chances they created. They just came up against a very inspired goalkeeper in, in Timo Horn, who, who was certainly, I think, relishing the chance to, to try and show himself in, in, in terms of against a big club. Um, but I thought that when Alex Awobi came on, they looked a little bit more more dynamic. But I think the fact that Arsenal already had the group all sewn up pretty much. I, I know that the uh, group win was, was confirmed tonight and I'm sure they'll be celebrating into the early hours in North London. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, I, I mean, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say it was all that bad a display from Arsenal. I, I thought that, yeah, Giroud certainly did struggle for service in the middle, but I thought Jack Wilshere actually looked quite good tonight as well. I thought that he was keeping the ball and actually when he got in positions around the box, I thought he always looked like making something happen, but maybe that doesn't say too much when you're playing against this current Cologne side. No, maybe not. I mean, I think you're being fairly generous. I take your point about the first half. Certainly there were moments for for Arsenal and moments where they looked dangerous, but perhaps it says a lot uh, about the the way that the team played tonight where the most dangerous moments came from Francis Coquelin, a man who is not renowned for his goal scoring. I think the last time he scored a goal in professional football was when he was on loan at Freiburg some years ago, and, and he was the one who came closest for Arsenal tonight. He was. That, that post hit in the first half, I thought, was going to be the... Uh, the harbinger of something a little bit more for Arsenal but I thought even he looked a little bit nervous in terms of the way that he was going about his business mm. there were two moments in the first half when he just ran the ball harmlessly out of play and I, I think that that kind of that little that lack of control um, it, I think it generally started to infect the Arsenal side a little bit more even after the even after Cologne had scored in the second half uh, but yeah I, I, I thought that Coquelin was pretty much most, mostly a passenger in the game, I, I would say. Mm. The the goal that, that uh, won the game for Cologne, I think is pretty pretty dubious. I mean, he put the penalty away very well, but it was one, uh, to me, it looked like an absolute dive in the box. Um, what, what were your thoughts on that? I'm going to have to sound a little bit like a manager here because uh, <laughs> I've not seen a replay just yet. <laughs> but... Uh, but everything I've been reading is that it's been a dubious penalty. The Cologne fans would say back to you that the that they had an equally dubious penalty go against them at the weekend, um, but it uh, and 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 it didn't get overturned by uh, VAR um, or, or video evidence. Um, so it's perhaps ironic that actually without VAR they got the penalty awarded. And and to be honest, the, the speed it happened that I can understand why the referee would have given it. Um, but I think. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen the replay myself, but I can well believe that. Yeah, uh, it, it, it looked the, the way he went down; it was quite soft, all the same. Mm. Um, but uh, I think I think Cologne probably deserve a, a little bit of luck, um, <laughs> given the way that things have been going for them uh, in, in the league. That. That, that's all I can attest to that. Right, fair enough. Arsenal are, you know, have conceded too many penalties. We keep conceding penalties, and uh, 
uh, I think it's a, I think it's a bit of an issue. Certainly, um, again, uh, people point to the fact that Petr Cech doesn't save them. David Ospina didn't save it tonight, and uh, the bigger issue, of course, is is giving away penalties. Um, just very finally, do you think uh, you know Arsene Wenger will come away from this? I mean, he's obviously not going to be happy about. Uh, losing the game, but the result between uh, Bate Borisov and Red Star Belgrade means that Arsenal win the group, uh, which I suppose is the aim when when you uh, begin a competition like this. Um, it, it may give him a chance to uh, to experiment a little in the final game, perhaps play a few more of the youngsters. He seemed to put out an experienced side tonight because he wanted to make sure that the job got done. Uh, it might be time just to say, okay, I know what these some of these experienced players can do. Let's give let's give some youth a chance. Yeah, I, I think I think you're spot on there, particularly because I think that the only thing that he will have learned tonight really would have been more negatives than positives about his players. I mm. think when the, the way that Rob Holding was was turned by uh, John Cordoba of Cologne, a man who has been very much struggling for confidence and was whistled off the pitch by the home fans in the second half. Um, I don't think that speaks too highly of his performance. I didn't quite understand why Callum Chambers was being played uh, at wing-back in, instead of Debushi. I think it, it's perhaps a statement of, of what Arsene Wenger thinks in terms of the, uh, in terms of the pace that, that Matthew Debushi has or, or the lack of it. Um, but I thought that Debushi would have probably been a more comfortable pick at wing-back, for example. Mm. But I think that otherwise... I think he saw he saw once again the impact and the drive that Alex Iwobi can bring, for sure. But I think that yeah, some of those young players who are coming off the bench, the likes of Reese Nelson, uh, Eddie Unketia, I can't pronounce his name. I don't think he said that. Is that correct? Got it spot on. Uh, but I think it'll be good. Okay, <laughs> but I think I think they'll probably be relishing a chance in, in in that final home game, just just to have another kind of chance to try and show, show what they're about. But. I would say a very forgettable night for Arsenal, but I, I don't think they'll put too much of an emphasis on on the results. And I, I think I think you saw that in terms of the way that the supporters reacted when when the Arsenal players went over to the fans uh, immediately at the, at the end of the game. All the Arsenal fans were applauding. I think they were understanding of the circumstances. So I think I don't think that uh, any Arsenal fan is going to have uh, real trouble processing this result. That's for sure. <laughs> I might wager that uh, most of the Arsenal fans in that away end are pissed up on gigantic German beers, so that might help. <laughs> but uh, uh, well, well, not in Cologne, Andrew. Oh no, not in Cologne, Andrew. You're meant to you're meant to get them small here in Cologne. Oh uh, right, they, they come in point twos generally. Oh um, wow. So, but but. I'm sure I, I would I would wager that a lot of the Arsenal fans will manage to get through quite a lot tonight. Uh, all the same, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and the, I think after the result, I, I'm sure yeah. I'm sure the home fans will be offering them to them for free as well. So uh, <laughs> they might not do too badly. Yeah, it could be a good evening in Cologne. Uh, all right, well, uh, Archie, thanks very much indeed. I'll let you go and get one uh, one of those uh, relatively small beers to uh, to calm yourself down. Thanks as ever. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Thank you very much indeed to Archie. You can follow him on Twitter at Archie. RT1 that is at Archie RT1 so there you go one more game to go in the Europa League it's Bate Borisov at home and here's what I would like to see happen I would like all the kids to play I would like Arsene Wenger to say fuck it we've won the group I know what these guys can do I know what Giroud Elneny Coquelin Wilshire I know what these guys can do I've seen it time and time again 
Let's go all in with a really young team. Give these kids a chance. Play them in front of the home fans. It's probably not going to be the uh, the uh, record Emirates attendance, I wouldn't imagine, for this particular game. They they should do something with the tickets, actually. Just give them away or five or to like schools and stuff and just pack the place full of, full of young Arsenal fans. Play a really young team who are enthusiastic and, and, you know, are up for it. This is a chance for them to really show that they can do something. And who knows? It could be just a fun night. You know, the result doesn't mean anything. It's not going to, like, derail our momentum or anything like that. So just, like, go for it. Play the kids. Have a crack. See what happens. You know, I'd much rather that than see some of those guys out there again just kind of going through the motions or doing what they do when we know that that's what they do. And they haven't, over the course of this Europa League campaign, some of these senior players, put any pressure on the manager to select them for the first team. They just haven't. So, you know, why should they get another go? We've had five games. Let's let's see some kids out there and have a and have a bit of crack with it. That's what I think. Anyway, probably won't happen, but I'd like to see that happen. Right. The competition from last week, I gave you a chance to win one of five copies of Jens Lehmann's autobiography, The Madness is on the Pitch. The random number generator has done its thing. The winners are Ron Nord, Darren Hemmett. Keith Miller, Niall Doherty, and Mark Renshaw. Congratulations to you guys. Uh, I think I have all your details. I'll just double-check that I have them. Uh, the publisher will send the book out to you. And uh, for the rest of you, if you want to pick that book up, it's uh, it's quite interesting and entertaining. It's, it's quite um, oddly written. I can't explain uh, whether it's to do with the translation from German or whether it's just the way that Jens expresses himself. But there are just bits when you're reading it, you go, that's a really odd phrase. That's that's a really strange way of putting that. But then I don't suppose you would expect anything less from Jens Lehmann anyway. So there you go. Congratulations to you guys. The books will be on the way soon. God. 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 What a wonderful car. What a wonderful cup. God. Such great memories. God. 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 Enjoy the moment. Enjoy the occasion. I will be there. Make it a spectacular game. Keep it going to the last second. That's what it's all about. God. God. God, I wish I was God, 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 Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Now, much has happened since the last time we spoke on this particular podcast. Arsenal beat Tottenham 2-0 at the Emirates last weekend. Very enjoyable, very fun altogether. They got put back in their box a little bit, didn't they? They were, they were taken out of their box. And now they're sort of put back in it. You know, the box, the one that's sort of there in the corner, it's marked, you'll always be shit. You know that box. The one that they've existed in for many years. And of course, there was a lot of uh, furore online because of what the Arsenal Twitter account did. Very sinister behavior on their part, posting a picture of Mesut Ozil drinking a cup of tea at one particular journalist. But, you know, uh, jokes aside, it did lead to some unacceptable behavior from a very small number, I think it should be fair to say. But still an unacceptable number of Arsenal fans who who leveled abuse uh, at the uh, the journalist who did that, you know, combined 11 and picked all the Spurs players thing, you know, but it, it, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because where does the responsibility lie? Is it with Arsenal or is it with the people who make those comments? Is it with Twitter? Where Where is the responsibility? Should accounts with big followings know better than to be a bit mischievous online? Or do we then uh, rob ourselves of something if because of the actions of a few idiots, you know, accounts with big followings can't post things like that. You know, I, it's a it's an interesting one, and obviously it's part of a new media landscape with uh, the rise in club specific content. You know, sites like Arsblog, for example, exist for many other clubs, and the way that the media are portrayed and perceived among fans, I think, is a very interesting subject. So, with me to talk about that and a lot more, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Daniel Story from Football Three Six Five. Hi, Daniel. Angie, you well? I am fine, thank you very much. I want to talk to you about um, something we discussed, uh, myself and James, on the Arsecast Extra on Monday, because in the wake of Arsenal's 2-0 win over Tottenham last weekend, there seemed to be more discussion about a tweet that Arsenal sent out, which I'm sure everybody knows about now, but it was a, a reaction uh, to a journalist who'd written a combined 11, picked 11 Spurs players, and Arsenal sent a, a cheeky little gif of Mesut Ozil uh, sipping a cup of tea and winking at the camera. You know, all, all good-natured. Journalists got a bit of uh, uh, flack, a bit of attention for it, uh, complained about some abuse, which he's absolutely within his rights to do. Um, I just wanted to sort of get your feeling on, on the whole incident because it did provoke a really strong response, particularly from certain members of the, journal, uh, the journalistic profession mm. who, on the one hand were accusing Arsenal fans of defending the club at all costs and not countenancing any criticism of the club, but at the same time were perhaps doing the same thing for their own profession. Yeah, firstly, I think I think it was probably a mistake on Arsenal's part. I don't think there was any malice intended. I, I agree that it was a you know it was a cheeky thing to do. I think if they had their time again, they probably won't do it again. Um, simply because there wasn't an awful lot to be gained out of it, quite frankly. You know, he just won the North London derby. That was where mm. your happiness lay. 
there wasn't really a need for to sort to win anything else in terms of you know little battles. I, I do think it was it was non malicious. Um, I think it was probably a a mistake. Um, I also think it was probably a mistake not to add in the um, you know the publication themselves as opposed to the individual journalist because simply because of how Twitter unfortunately works. Arsenal have 12 million followers and it will very quickly be picked up on and and there are people who will use their support and their you know the tribalistic support of of a football club to excuse their pretty abhorrent views and yeah. you know and, and they're yeah it'd be basically sounding off um I, I don't think it's you know I don't think it's a, a huge crime at all I think sure. it got blown out of proportion um but I can kind of see why um, people in the industry kind of th- got a little bit, um, a little bit annoyed at the defence, sort of blind defence of the club. But I don't know. I think that the I think the club's intention was certainly honourable. Sure. I mean, obviously, um, one of the the most enjoyable parts of Football Three Six Five for me, anyway, and I'm sure many of the people listening here is uh, Media Watch. Which it will be fair to say takes uh, a much more critical view of some of the stuff produced by some of the journalists out there than the Arsenal tweet was to that particular journalist. Um, mm. I mean, is there anything wrong with engaging in that kind of? Um, I know I, I hesitate to use the word banter, but that kind of engagement. You know that if people are putting their stuff out in the public domain, then there is. Uh, the right of everybody to have a to have a little go back once i think it is good natured and not uh, you're not instigating or encouraging people to pile on in a malicious way yeah i suppose i i, I think to be honest my, my biggest blame in all this although and it's not really something so it's not football related is is the fault lies with twitter yeah and the fault lies in having a platform whereby people can um you know submit homophobic and and anti-Semitic abuse and effectively have no callback or certainly run a very low risk of having any callback. Mm. Um, it would be a shame if that therefore ended the discourse, kind of good-natured, banterous discourse between um, professionals in the industry. That would be a huge shame because Twitter was intended initially as a way of, you know, it was sold as a kind of get close to your heroes or get close to the to the things you love or find out things about celebrities and clubs etc yeah so it would be a huge shame if that if that was to be lost um i don't really see a way around it if if twitter is not going to police that any more thoroughly and i don't really see you know i say i don't see arsenal repeating i also don't see other football clubs follow i think they'll follow their lead and also not repeat that simply because they won't run that risk anymore because it's sad but the minority will unfortunately spoil it for the majority yeah um whether whether there was anything on the the publication in question publishing inflammatory and i use that term you know it's, it was a long way away from inflammatory there is a lot more inflammatory things than have been written about football clubs um whether it will stop those, you know, the industry doing that, I, I very much doubt. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there is now a need to drive traffic, obviously, to drive clicks, to drive advertising, and therefore we we will see more and more inflammatory things being written to drive. Whether that's you know whether that's what we call clickbait, or whether that's just inflammatory headlines, or whether that's um, 
you know, very strong and perhaps slightly ludicrous opinions on things with some of the columnists we see now. We, you know, we've already seen that in the news, the news side of newspapers. And it was only a matter of time before that grows in the sports side, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you with regards to the platform, because, uh, you know, point I made, and I'm sure it's the same on Football 365, you know, people who want to engage and want to comment on the articles, they have to follow some rules. And the rules mm. are you, you can't be sexist, you can't be racist, you can't be homophobic, you can't be anti-Semitic, you know, you can't run foul of the rules of, of the land in terms of libel and all those kind of things. And that is where the issue lies with Twitter is that people can say these things with impunity and know mm. that, that their account is not going to be... Uh, suspended more more uh, more likely than not, but I mean you see it not not simply um, in engagement between let's say a football club and a journalist, uh, but you see it uh, when a football club will will post something on its own social media channels. You know, I think of. Uh, for example, if Arsenal post uh, a message to uh, uh, to Muslim fans uh, for Eid Mubarak, and I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that right, um, apologies if I'm not, but you will see a litany of responses from Islamophobic people. The same if Arsenal uh, support the Rainbow Laces campaign or or uh, mention the the gay gooners immediately you get a litany of homophobic abuse directed at the Arsenal Twitter account. Now, I don't think yeah. the Arsenal Twitter account should stop sending out those messages. No. It's just, no, no, it's, no it's the reaction of, it's the reaction of those people. So how do we, how do we then find the balance? Is there anything that we can do as fans or, or do we just kind of have to accept this as part and parcel of online life or using Twitter for as long as Twitter are unwilling to deal with it? I suspect we have to <laughs> grin and bear it, unfortunately. I don't suppose that it, you know, the obvious answer is to go, well, I won't use, you know, I'll take a stand and won't use Twitter anymore. But unfortunately, the, the you know, our behaviour and our use of it is so entrenched and it's such a, um, you know, it's such a staple of, of the journalism industry as mm. well as as well as football that um, I don't think we really do have a choice. Um, I think, you know, there are on many more, infinitely more topics than this, there are... Um, those who will rail against Twitter's lax uh, policing of its members. And it, that has long been the case. And this is one of football's most high-profile examples of it. But as you rightly say, every time a football club tweets something that, you know, let's be honest, is not even controversial. It's no. not, you know, it's, it, this particular topic was quite club specific. It was quite a, you know, you picked all Spurs players. We don't like Spurs. We've got a rivalry. That stoked it up. That was the accusation. But actually, Twitter users and, and probably the same minority have proven themselves to be completely untrustworthy and completely um, abhorrent on, on many different topics. And there are ways of answering, there are ways of engaging with that Arsenal teacup tweet, uh, including the journalists to sort of, you know, there are ways of doing that, to, to say, got you here or good joke or you know very mild discourse yeah there are ways of doing that without resorting you'd hope to offense you know effectively hatred which is what people are doing and for goodness sake we kind of football is meant to be our escape from that kind of thing it's meant to be the place where we um you know we find um comfort away from things like that it, it's certainly it's the last place we would like to see that kind of discourse and as I say, it's a minority spoiling from the majority, but I don't see how the majority can um, 
can fight this without the help of Twitter. Twitter it, is the is yeah. the police here. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, is there something fundamental within football itself that lends itself? I don't mean to to the uh, the responses to the Arsenal tweets, for example. Mm. Uh, but but when it comes to something like this, you mentioned tribalism, and Arsenal versus Tottenham is obviously a very uh, long-standing, very serious rivalry. And you know, there are positives to that because you look at the atmosphere inside the Emirates Stadium, not known yeah. usually for its uh, for its vociferousness. I think it would be fair to say that it can be at times a bit quiet in there. But when Tottenham come to town because of this rivalry, because of this, uh, for want of a better word, hatred that exists mm. between the two clubs and the two sets of fans, um, you know, it, it, it generates something quite positive. As long as that then doesn't spill over into uh, anything more sinister, into violence, and I don't think anybody would condone that in any way. I mean, there would be people who would condone that, but they're the same people who would send those kind of messages yeah. uh, on Twitter. Um, so, where you know, how do we find how do we find the balance there? Because without those things, it is part of what makes sports so great. It is part of what makes you feel good on a Monday morning when you go back to work and you're working, whether it's a North London derby, the Merseyside derby, Manchester, Glasgow, the you know the El Clasico, whatever it is. You know, part of what makes winning so great is when you when you beat that close rival, that that person to whom a you hate and b you can't face losing yourself. Yeah, and 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 obviously there are ways of doing that. I do think there is there has been a rise of of tribalism over the last four or five years that is associated with um, certainly with Twitter as a as a kind of faceless anonymous medium. It allows people to release their hatred, release their tension without fear of retribution. Um, I think in many ways, you know, English football has done exceptional work over the last 30 years to eradicate or certainly cut down upon on things like hooliganism and racism in very explicitly at games um but this in many ways this is kind of the new generation of hooliganism this is a you know the new generation of of that kind of football fan hatred it's not fans you know it's not fans on green street meeting up and fighting but it is an equivalent to that because it is you know it's unacceptable it's wrong and and football has a you know has to find a solution to it the the big issue now is that this is not a football problem it's kind of a societal problem i think yeah. i think the rise of tribalism and hatred in general in society i think is is prevalent as it is in football and that can't be coincidental no um and you know they are much more serious questions with much more difficult answers I suppose the other thing that occurs to me when you talk about that is the fact that fans of whatever club now can, uh, I don't mean to organize themselves, but but can can exist online and they don't have to exist in anything other than their own bubble, for example. Mm. So Arsenal fans, whether you're Wenger in, whether you're Wenger out, whether you love Olivier Giroud, whether you hate Olivier Giroud, etc., you can find a community within the online sphere because there are just so many of them out there. And the same goes for all the other big clubs, you know, with Liverpool, United, Tottenham, you know, all the clubs have their online presences now. Mm. And in, in some ways... You know, you see it. You see the the division. Certainly, I I see it between Arsenal fans. That even within this bubble, there are divisions. There are you know uh, cliques and niches and people who won't have anything to do with anybody else and think that these people are assholes. That in some ways, the the whole culture, unless it's something that's managed very carefully these communities can become essentially confrontational, that they exist to be the opposite of something else. 
that yeah, they, they I, I they're there and the other one is there and we're gonna we're gonna butt heads and that's just what we're gonna do uh, yeah and i think that is undoubtedly a very modern thing there's a difference between i i would rule a difference between fans and supporters and i think you know, in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s, a supporter of a football club was someone generally who who went to games as and when they could and as and when they could afford it. Um, and they were far easier to manage because if there was any trouble, it was generally um, either within the ground or within a couple of miles of the ground. Um, and if it was done under the banner of, of a football club, support the football club and the police could fairly easily um, get a grip on that. The difference now in when you talk about a club like Manchester United, for example, I think, say, now they have 650 million fans worldwide. Um, now, clearly, the, the vast majority of those will never go to Old Trafford and will mm. never go to a Manchester United game. So they have to find a way to almost prove to themselves and prove to other people just how much they love that club. And unfortunately, some people will will take that as I need to show my love by hating everything that is not pro my club. So that's why yeah. I think you now you get a huge, you know, there's a, a vast rise in accusations of bias against journalists, which effectively means, you know, I don't like that piece or I don't agree with that opinion or that's against my club. There seems within that community, and it's a huge community, there seems to be a a lack of tolerance that that you actually you don't get you know you don't get from the match going supporters so i will speak to a match going supporter you know an arsenal supporter about saturday's game and they will say yeah we didn't turn up yeah it was bad it was you know it was poor sorry a tottenham supporter and they'll say yeah it was bad it was you know it wasn't acceptable i'll write something online about that game and tottenham fans will say well you're just having a go at our club you, you hate our club you're always having a go at our club yeah so there's just a there seems to be within that community a lack of tolerance and and i believe it's because because they don't go to games generally they they need to find a way to prove their love to demonstrate their love and that seems to be in some cases being horrible about yeah. everything that isn't to do with that. Sure. Club. I mean, I think another thing, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think what, what's been interesting over the last number of years is that the people that used to be the voice of authority in football coverage were the journalists, the guys yeah. who wrote for the big newspapers. They had the back pages, they had the inside pages, they had the sports pages. And there really wasn't anywhere else for people to get their information about their football club. And obviously with the rise of the internet and, and the advent of, you know, sites like mine and equivalent sites uh, mm. for, for other football clubs, that the the voice of authority has shifted to a certain extent. That people can come to Arsblog and they'll find out more about Arsenal from Arsblog than they will from any newspaper or any journalist. And that's not to say that a journalist writing about Arsenal in his newspaper doesn't know what he's talking about, but it seems to me that the perception of the the football, the traditional, if you like, football journalists nowadays has changed. And people feel perhaps freer to have a go at these guys because the 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 knowledge perhaps that they have is not as in-depth as many of the people who read the sites or whatever club you support, you've got all this, you've got this vast knowledge of your club from top to bottom, from on pitch to off the pitch, boardroom, backroom, scouting, who drives the fucking team bus, everything. So the minute there's any, any kind of perception that the person is inaccurate in any way, it leaves them open to this criticism. And I think you're right that, that certainly there is, um, 
uh, there there are a cohort of people who will uh, hold no truck whatsoever with any criticism of their football club from Mm. anybody. doesn't matter who it is. They'll defend them right to the hilt. But I think as well, there has been a, a division between knowledgeable fans and the people who write about football for a living who we would traditionally have seen as those voices of authority. Yeah, I think that, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think maybe I hope more than expect, but I do hope that, that the, the the problem lies in the industry more than the individuals. I think it is now with the rise of online journalism and basically with the you know very simply with the industry's failure to spot that it should be charging for for that product at the advent of the internet. Um, it has left it in a position where it's now basically playing catch up for for revenue because it doesn't charge for the product as standard, which makes it very hard to start charging for it now. Mm. Um, And that's led to a culture where in some cases getting clicks is more important than getting the truth. Um, And I I think, I I honestly think that that trust in in journalism has has probably never been lower, which is a sad thing to say, but I, I believe that. Um, I don't think the advent of um, of transfer rumor journalism as a concept and as a you know almost as an industry within the industry, I don't think that's helped because um, it leads to cynicism uh, effect basically across the board. Um, but I also think that the demands of those journalists to to not just get the truth and get a good story and get it right, but kind of flower it up to make sure it gets hits yeah. is a pretty difficult balance for individuals and the way it's going it's only going to get tougher to do and yeah. and you're right because because sites like yours and, and many others can offer that service um at low cost or free you know or for free there has to be something else from journalism now to um to justify buying the newspaper effectively yeah what what i hope and, and you know without being too wanky i would class myself as a writer rather than a journalist because i don't i don't get stories i comment on them um but i hope that it leads to um a raft of better writing because there is i hope there is still value in in good writing and i hope that people want to read people's take on the stories and enjoy that take just as much as they will enjoy receiving the news sure but you're right you're absolutely right it, it is very hard now for a journalist unless they have impeccable store sources and even if they do they're kind of accused of just repeating club lines yeah. and i can see why that happens as well um it's very hard to stand out in the crowd i was going to ask you i mean you you i think that's a really interesting point you make about being a writer more than a journalist um i mean is that something you're you're conscious of when you write because I mean you, you know you're online you know you get flack uh, for even the most uh, basic mistake even mm. something a typo can lead people to give you a hard time and think well you're just a you know you're an asshole and I've got that myself <laughs> you know uh, it was a typo I'm very sorry I apologize they happen I don't have a team of proofreaders and sometimes <laughs> I put stuff out too quickly I'll hold my hands up but you know you write about you know, Premier League and beyond, and you write about it from a, a, a broad perspective and kind of where you are is is almost in the middle because you're writing for a very big website, but you're still online. You're still sort of straddling those those two worlds. Do, do you feel like uh, there's a demand for, I mean, not that you shouldn't have it anyway, but 
but a demand for accuracy that when you are writing something, you need to be absolutely on top of your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one day, I mean, you do the what, 16, 17 things we learned about the, yeah. the Premier League this weekend. I mean, that's a lot to take in because, you know, you're writing about Newcastle, then you're writing about Stoke, then you're writing about Arsenal. You know, th- there is a lot to take in uh, when you're when you're doing that kind of writing. Yeah, and, you know, I, I probably write between fifty and 20,000 words a week, so there will be mistakes in it. You know, they, they generally get published now because of the added issue of time pressure as well as, um, you know, as well as demand for content. There's a demand for content half an hour ago, so there is a time pressure, so there will be mistakes in things. I, I, to be honest, I have no issue with being pulled up on mistakes if that helps you to learn from those and move on. And let's be honest, these are not important important mistakes in the great in the wider <laughs> scheme of things so i have no issue with that really i do feel a pressure to to um write good content and the way that expresses itself and it's incredibly narcissistic is that you the rise of social media has led to a kind of neediness within writers certainly myself where you kind of constantly wanting feedback um and because some of that feedback will be negative by the very nature of it, you kind of cling on to the positive feedback. Um, it can be a very, you know, without playing the smallest violin too much, it can be quite a lonely industry in that sense because everyone's kind of doing the same and everyone knows deep down that, you know, I always joke, it's not a proper job. It's a job <laughs> that I have to pinch myself. That I get to do every day. You know, I don't have any journalism training, so I'm, I'm not of that old school at all. Um, I'm just someone that loves football that, is lucky enough to be able to write about it. So I think in the great scheme of things, I can't really moan about anything in the industry because at the end of the day, it's football. It's not, you know, it's not war. And I get me getting to write about it is something I consider myself very lucky for. But Mm. um, one, the only thing that will annoy people like me is is the term lazy journalism. The, the term <laughs> biased journalism is, is a bit of a joke. You know, we hear it all the time and it's just, it's ludicrous. But when you're accused of being lazy, when you, you, you know, you work, do work damn hard, that's the only thing that really sticks. And I think people know who work hard. So no, I, I can't pretend to have any huge gripes about sure. how I'm treated, really. Sure. I think, I think the, uh, as I said, I referenced it earlier, but I think the... Um the Media Watch column does a very good job of referencing much better examples of lazy journalism. Uh, and, you know, what I would consider lazy journalism is uh, writing what you think people want to hear rather than what you actually think. Because uh, the number of times you pull up an example of uh, ex-journalist saying this on one day and within a week he's completely contradicted himself because that's what happens when you're writing what you think people want to hear rather than what you actually think. Because you can always look back on your opinion and go, well, actually, I thought that then and now I think this. At least I can explain it. But, yeah. you know... And, it's- in, and the, 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 what the internet age has done is that 20 years ago no one would ever notice things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that column is is intended to be a kind of sideways glance and a sort of uh, light-hearted look at it. Sometimes it, it goes beyond that because sometimes I think the subject matter demands it. Um, but yeah, I, you, you're absolutely right. It, it, the one thing you have to do is write what you think, because if you don't write what you think, then not only are you going to get caught out, but also people are going to kind of lose respect and kudos for your opinion because they're never going to be sure whether it is actually your opinion or if it's just you know it's just what you have been told or what feel you feel you should write on that day and i think those people are very quickly found out and i think those people quite quickly fall 
away from you know away from the mainstream because they lose their their respect and you know and, and amid, amidst all of that it should be said that there are some fantastic journalists and some fantastic writers out there who do write what they think who get good stories who do great interviews and and i hope that that adds some worth to you know football fandom as a whole no i agree with you and i think people are i think people are appreciative of those things you know i see there are always going to be people who you can't please and i see great writers and great pieces and great articles and interviews you know lambasted by certain fans and you think well what the you know what are you looking for here what is it that you want um, you know, this is intelligent, this is well written, and just because it doesn't fit with your worldview doesn't mean that the person who wrote it is, you know, all the things mm. that you, you say they are. But yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting other, time. Go on. The other the other the other issue with the industry now is because because of Twitter and because of Facebook and because there's such twenty four hour news coverage and maybe Sky Sports News kind of started it as well, um, there is a constant demand for content. So therefore uh, un, it, inevitably that leads to kind of reactionary uh, content post matches so you know you will say one week Tottenham were brilliant last week but then they lost to Arsenal and they were awful and people say well last week you said they were good and the simple answer is well yeah because last week they were good because unfortunately now we don't get to make our decisions on sixth monthly basis yeah. <laughs> we have to kind of constantly be offering takes because takes is content and that's as frustrating for those writing it as it is reading it i'm oh, sure yeah listen i see you know this new thing i've noticed this season is like halftime player ratings it's like oh come on thankfully <laughs> i can honestly say i've never done had to do that no no we were gonna we were gonna do something there the other week you know five minute player ratings after five minutes of the game we were gonna publish a whole series of player ratings but uh i, f- I feared that the joke might be lost somewhere along the way that's the worry that's the worry when the jokes are taken yeah. seriously that's when we have to worry all right look uh, just very quickly before we go I want to talk to you a bit about this weekend's game Arsenal having beat having beaten Tottenham in the North London derby um, should be in good shape uh, from a confidence point of view to go into a game against Burnley but what we have I suppose in Burnley is a team doing really really well at this moment in time uh, level with points uh, in the Premier League with Arsenal uh, they're a team that's hard to beat and Arsenal are a team that find it hard to win away from home yeah, and they're a team that 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 Sean Dyche will, even if he, he if he gives it the cliche of you know just another game, it's the kind of game that he and therefore by extension his side will absolutely love to to frustrate Wenger and frustrate Wenger's attack. <sighs> Burnley have defended brilliantly this season. Burnley have been incredibly efficient in attack. They have had far fewer shots on target than their goals for column merits. So if Arsenal defend properly. They would Arsene Wenger would would fancy keeping a clean sheet. And you're right, given the run that Arsenal are on, it, they can't go into these games fearing same old Arsenal anymore because it kind of becomes a self fulfilling prophecy that if you go to these grounds and think, well, they're going to make it hard for us and it's going to be horrible and it's going to be cold and so on and so forth, then as I say, they, that kind of becomes self fulfilling. Yeah. What what the Derby victory does is it it should mean that Arsenal are effectively in their highest mood since winning the FA Cup final um, and obviously that being the end of last season so they should be incredibly high spirited and they should they should beat Burnley they are Burnley have done brilliantly this season and they have frustrated uh, Chelsea and they frustrated Liverpool and they frustrated Tottenham but Arsenal must consider themselves above that 
Yeah, um, I, yeah. I mean, what... it's, 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 it's another challenge and it's another way for Wenger to say, again, do you know what? You Everyone talks about our mental strength and our mental weaknesses and, and rightly so, but here is finally some evidence we're moving in the right direction in exactly the time when people thought we wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like, you know, Arsenal have got to... They they kind of have to go for it. I don't think they can start to really... I'm not saying you should ignore the team you're playing or their record at home or mm. how difficult they are to beat there. But I think what Arsenal have got to do, and it's perhaps one of the things that people criticise Wenger for, is to focus much more on themselves and what they're good at rather than... Uh, be too cautious when you go into a game like this. I think they've got the attacking strength and the attacking potential plus uh, options from the bench to uh, to really have a go. It doesn't mean they've got to be gung-ho. I mean, it's really just look at what you did against Tottenham and do that yeah. again. Exactly. And that, that to me, as a, as a you know comparative outsider, that feels quite old Arsenal to me, that going into an away game and effectively treating it as a home game. I remember victories, you know, in the in the good old days of Wenger against places like Middlesbrough and Everton where you go and score four or five goals yeah. and effectively just turn up and treat it exactly like a home game. Um, and there is there is there seems to me to be a benefit in, in doing exactly the same this season because the worry with Arsenal this season was that the home form would be kind of strangled by the mood around the club, which I think it's fair to say at the end of last season did happen. I'm not saying that was a fan's fault at all because it wasn't. But I think I think that mood kind of hampered Arsenal slightly. Given the fairly incredible home record this season, there is no reason for you know, there is no reason for fear because as I say, if you play every game like the, like you did against Tottenham, you'll finish in the top four. There's no doubt about that. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. <laughs> we'll see what Sunday brings for us. Daniel, always interesting talking to you. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. Cheers to Daniel. You can find him on Football365 and on Twitter at DanielStory85. That is at DanielStory85. Right. That's just about that for today's show. I know the uh, the midweek result wasn't great, but, you know, I will trade that if we can pick up three points against Burnley at Turf Moor on Sunday. It's a difficult place to go. As we know, they're hard to break down, they're hard to beat, but we've got good players who can play well, and they showed that last weekend against Tottenham. It's a different kind of a game, obviously, when you're away from home, and our away record is as as iffy as ours has been over the last little while. That, that adds some doubts to it, but I think we just go for it. I think we've got to pick a team that can score goals, they allow a lot of shots, and if we can be efficient with our chances, I think we can pick up three points in this particular game, and from there, perhaps build some momentum. I think there's a midweek game, and then Manchester United, so... Uh, it's a time of the year where you can pick up a lot of points and you can start to really climb up the table or if results don't go your way, you can see those ahead of you really stretching out and, and create, creating a bit of a gap. So we've got to make sure that we uh, we follow up what we did against Spurs uh, with a result on Sunday. So I'm going to keep fingers crossed for that. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll look back at that in the Arscast Extra. Thank you as ever for listening. I really do appreciate it. Remember to share and subscribe and rate and review the podcast if you have time to do that. That would be great. If you don't, don't worry about it. I understand people have busy lives. I catch on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
I was sitting staring out the window at a dame when the guy walked into the office. I didn't appreciate the interruption. She had legs like a lobster. Ten of them in red as a baboon's asshole. Then I realized I better put the glue down. What do you want, mister, I said. I need help, he said. Oh yeah, I said, what kind of help? I need information, he said. I need to find out why everything in my life is so terrible. He gave me all the information, his contact details. I said I'd do some investigating. Come back in two weeks, I said. All right, he said. Two weeks passed. I was sitting staring out the window at a... You get the picture. He came back in. I hope you got good news for me, mister, he said. I don't know if you call it good news or bad news, I said, but I know what's going on. Oh yeah, he said. Yeah, I said. There's a reason why everything in your life turns out bad. Why's that, he said. Well, Mr. Hotspur, I said, it's cause you'll always be shit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 